Our scripture reading this morning is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. That reading may be found in the Pew Bible on page 1001. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Let's pray. Father, our request is that of the Greeks who came to see your son's disciple Philip in John chapter 12. We wish to see Jesus. In fact, Father, if we don't wish to see Jesus, cause us to wish to see Jesus. We confess that we must see Jesus. And we know that he's held forth in the word of Christ, the scriptures. And so would you inhabit the preaching of the word of Christ by your Holy Spirit? Would you anoint me with Holy Spirit power? I'm not equal to the task, Father, of causing any eternal good to be done in any of these hearts, including my own. So we plead with you to empower the means you've ordained, the preaching of the gospel from the word to affect hearts today, both of us who have believed and those who are yet to believe. We wish to see Jesus, and we wish to see him with adoring eyes of faith. Please help us, Father, to your eternal glory. We pray through Jesus. Amen. If not for 
Jesus' exchange with the Pharisee teacher Nicodemus in the third chapter of the Gospel of John, you might not know about one of the strangest events in the Old Testament. This event is recorded for us in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. So in that text, the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness of what's now the Sinai Peninsula, and once again, they're murmuring and complaining against Moses and the Lord. They say, why have you brought us up out of Egypt? Parentheses, why have you by your mighty hand rescued us from slavery? To die in the wilderness, for there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. No food, they say, even as they complain about the food God miraculously provides. No water, even as they're watered by a rock. And in response to this sinful ingratitude, the Lord sends venomous snakes throughout the congregation of Israel. And many were bitten and many died. And so some of these Israelites came to Moses and said, We've sinned against you and against the Lord. Please ask the Lord to send these snakes away. And so Moses did pray for the people. And the Lord gave Moses a peculiar instruction. Do you remember some of you? God told Moses to fashion a venomous snake out of bronze and to fix it on a pole and then to lift this in the air. And God told Moses that Whoever among the Israelites had been bitten by a venomous snake and looked at this bronze snake would live. It's a fascinating story, a historical and true story. But maybe you're asking, what's it got to do with the book of Hebrews? Well, in this book, you're being exhorted to look up and live. But what is it that you're to look at? And what's more, how? are you to look? That is, where do you direct your gaze to obey the command to look? And what's the penalty you'll face for not looking? Is it as severe as that for the Israelites who either looked and lived or didn't look and died? Well, I aim to answer those questions in this message today that's going to wrap up our time in the book of Hebrews using the first 13 verses as our sister Lisa just read as our launch point. But first, let's talk about the covenants. In community group leaders and assistance meetings, in our own community group gatherings and in conversations after church and in emails with some of you, it's become clear that a little time here before we leave Hebrews behind, clarifying the role between the old covenant and the new covenant would be time well spent. Because the reason this preacher wrote the sermon that is the book of Hebrews to these people, the the sin he's warning them against five times in this book, all of that has as its backdrop the relationship between the old covenant and the new covenant. And you need to understand that God's good design, God's intended role for the old covenant was, as I say in your sermon outline in your bulletin, to prepare the way for the new covenant. The old covenant was to prepare the way for the new covenant. The Lord never meant for the old covenant to be the arrangement whereby he saves his people. To see this, go with me to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. 
Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. This is the start of the third and perhaps most well-known of the warning passages in Hebrews. Follow along with me as I read beginning at chapter 5, verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits." Now, the this in chapter 5, verse 11, about which the author says he has much to say, is, you'll recall, the this is Christ's Melchizedekian priesthood. But he rebukes them for the need he senses to pause in his instruction and for their unhealthy reliance on the basic principles of the oracles of God, on their reliance on milk, not solid food. Maybe you'll remember that when we preach this text, we define those basic principles, the milk, the things, uh, as the things concerning the Old Covenant, the law of Moses, what chapter 6, verse 1 refers to as the elementary doctrine of Christ. Remember, these Hebrews had demonstrated faith in Christ. They had appeared to be living as recipients of new covenant blessings and promises, salvation by faith alone in Christ's death and resurrection, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And to become partakers of the new covenant required leaving the old covenant and the law of Moses behind. The time for that covenantal arrangement between God and his people ended with the advent and the death and resurrection of Jesus. But it seems that these Hebrews had begun to suffer persecution for their leaving behind the old covenant and embracing the new covenant. Persecution, in my mind, doubtless from the same kinds of people who plagued the Galatians and the Colossians and the Philippians, for their leaving behind the old covenant in favor of the new. But you'll recall persecution had gotten hard for these Hebrews. Remember, some of them had been imprisoned. Some of them had had their, their property seized and plundered. And so by the time this book is written, some of these Hebrews were, for the sake of avoiding persecution, toying with the idea of walking away from the new covenant, walking away from salvation by faith alone in Christ, and were looking to place themselves back under the old covenant. They were looking to be justified by keeping the law of Moses to turn down the persecution thermometer. So you need to understand why the author of Hebrews regards that decision to leave the new covenant to, re to return to the old covenant as a damnable error. That is something that would send a person to hell. He clearly believes that. He clearly believes that because that very move, leaving the, the new covenant to return to the old covenant, is the thing he's warning about in the starkest of terms five separate times in this letter. As I said earlier, 
before we leave Hebrews, I want you to at least begin to apprehend that God's plan for the old covenant was not to be the arrangement whereby God saved anyone. No one was ever saved, indeed could ever be saved, by keeping the old covenant's commands. Not least because no one could keep the old covenant's commands on their own. No. The old covenant's good design from the Lord, the purpose that God intended and that it indeed fulfilled, was to prepare the way for the new covenant. We see that in places like Galatians 3. In fact, keep a marker in Hebrews and turn left in your Bibles a bit to Galatians. Philemon, 2nd and 1st Timothy, 2nd and 1st Thessalonians, and then you've got those four in a row. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and we're in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And we'll pick it up in verse 18. We're seeing that the old covenant in God's design served a preparatory role. And so it was was inappropriate for the Hebrews to seek to be justified by it. Look at what Paul says, Galatians 3 verse 18. For if the inheritance, that is the blessings that God promised to Abraham and those, to those who would have Abraham's faith. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until... That word helps us to see that there's an expiration date on this old covenant until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Who is that offspring? Verse 16 tells us, who is Christ? And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Verse 20, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our, listen, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now the English Standard Version from which I'm reading has the word guardian in verses 24 and 25. Your translation might have tutor or schoolmaster, or it might have the phrase put in charge or under the supervision. They're all talking about the same thing. And we see here, what was one of the purposes of the law of Moses, the old covenant, as Paul gives it to us in Galatians 3. The old covenant was put in place according to the Lord's good plan and design to accompany humanity to Christ. In the same way that in the ancient world, these Galatians would have understood this. Families of means would hire a guardian whose job it would be to accompany a boy or young man as he was schooled 
and as he generally grew into maturity, after which time the man wouldn't have a guardian or a tutor anymore. If a man in his maturity had still had a guardian or a tutor, it would have been a sign that something in this young man's developmental process had gone wrong if he never graduated from needing this guardian. Similarly, the old covenant was put in place to show us our wretchedness and our need for a savior. It was put in place to restrain some evil by setting forth punishments for certain sins. It was put in place to reveal God's character, showing the believer what it looks like to live in obedience to him. But the old covenant was not intended to be the arrangement whereby any of God's people were saved. We'll see that unmistakably clearly in some portions of Hebrews we'll read in just a bit. And so the question I know that's in some of your minds, because you've asked me, is how is it that a person was saved under the Old Covenant or during the time of the Old Covenant? Could anyone be saved? And the answer is yes. How were they saved? By faith alone in new covenant promises that would be fulfilled in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. No one, no one was ever saved by means of the old covenant. That wasn't God's design for that covenant. That was his design for the new covenant alone. But before the new covenant was inaugurated with Christ's death and resurrection, people who lived during the time of the old covenant, they were saved because they believed that God would keep his promise to save his people. They, like Abraham, believed what God had revealed. And again, like Abraham, when they believed God, God credited it to them as righteousness. So then some of you have asked, what relationship did the law of Moses have for those who were truly saved under the old covenant? Well, the law of Moses was still God's command in the same way that God still has commands for his people today. There's never been a time when God has not said to his people, you shall do these things and you shall not do these other things. And so those who were truly saved during the time of the old covenant, again, by faith in new covenant promises concerning Christ's death and resurrection, they demonstrated that they were saved by keeping the law of Moses. They demonstrated that they were saved by, by offering the sacrifices that the Lord commanded in the law, by not eating the foods the Lord forbade in the law, and so on and so forth. But they obeyed his commands, not so the Lord would save them, but because he had saved them. In the same way, you who have savingly believed on the Lord obey his commands today, not so that he'll save you, but because he has. And so, the old covenant codified in the law of Moses was not intended by the Lord to be the arrangement by which he saved anyone. What it was intended for, to serve as a guardian until the fullness of time, when the Son of God would come and die and rise from the dead, is exactly the purpose it fulfilled. And so we see throughout Hebrews how the book's audience, tempted as they were to run back to the Old Covenant for justification, were thoroughly missing the Old Covenant and were asking of it something the Lord had never designed to perform. The Old Covenant could not and would not be the arrangement by which the Lord saved his people. To refamiliarize yourself with this, go with me back to Hebrews to Hebrews chapter 8. As you're turning there, 
we'll put Hebrews 8 in its context. It's in the middle of the longest section of the book, chapters 4 through 10, that deal with Christ's high priestly ministry. Follow along with me as I read beginning at chapter 8 and verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Again, we're still talking about the covenants. Why is Christ's high priestly ministry as verse 6 says here, more excellent in the high priestly ministry of those priests who were in Aaron's line. Because the covenant Jesus mediates as high priest, verse 6 says, is better than the covenant those priests mediated, the old covenant. Why is it better? Because the new covenant is enacted on better promises. And what are those promises? Well, we see them outlined in verses 8 through 12 when the writer quotes from Jeremiah 31, one of the clearest prophecies in all of the Old Testament concerning the new covenant. The new covenant, Jeremiah prophesies, will result in those who are in it continuing in it. Not like the old covenant's participants, the vast majority of whom did not continue in the Lord's covenant. No, the new covenant promises that the Lord will put his laws into the minds of those who participate in it. He'll write his laws on their hearts. That's all the language of obedience. Covenant promises obedience. And he promises he'll be their God and they his people and that they'll know him. And God will be merciful toward their iniquities and remember their sins no more. That's what the Lord promises in the new covenant. And with the inauguration of that new covenant... In Christ's blood and his empty tomb. Notice verse 13. The old covenant, the first covenant, is made obsolete, old, ready to vanish away. Nothing that anyone should be looking to return to now that Christ has come and has accomplished his redeeming work for his people. So for these Hebrews to seek to be saved by means of old covenant promises is in the final tally to be lost eternally. Because that covenant's sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats, could not take away sins. Those sacrifices could not make perfect those who draw near. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, 
he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So I want you to apprehend, and you say, thanks a lot for this clarity, Mitch, as we get done with Hebrews. But I want you to apprehend, at least to some degree, this relationship between the old and new covenants. Not only because covenant serves as a framework for the whole of the scriptures, but because that relationship permeates everything in the book of Hebrews. And the gist of it is this. The old covenant was eternally designed by the Lord to get us to Jesus. And once Jesus came and died and rose, the old covenant was designed to give way to the new covenant. The only covenant wherein salvation from sin and eternal life by grace through faith alone in Jesus alone could be found. Now, with all of that in mind, how is it that the writer of Hebrews labors tirelessly over these 13 chapters to woo these guys away from the old covenant that they're being tempted to return back to? How is it that he is working against their returning back to the old covenant? Yes, warnings, five separate warnings. But I think if you zoom out even further, you could answer that question by saying simply this. He's saying to them, would you look at the Son of God? Isn't he refulgent and lovely and excellent in every way. And the way the writer holds Jesus up in this book to be marveled at and adored and even to be feared is by holding the Lord Jesus Christ up, as I say in your sermon outline, as God's final prophet, final priest, and the final king of God's people. In chapter 3 and verse 1, we're told to consider Jesus. Chapter 12 and verse 2, we're told to be looking to Jesus. Beholding, beholding Christ and the splendid ways that he executes his offices. Fixing our eyes on Jesus is, as I say in the sermon theme, the surefire antidote to apostasy. The surefire antidote to falling away from faith in Jesus as these Hebrews are in danger of doing. So first notice that Jesus is extolled in this book as the final prophet in fulfillment of Moses' prophecy in Deuteronomy chapter 18 where Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. What is it that a prophet did? Their office was not primarily concerned with telling the future as though Old Testament prophets were the Jews' version of fortune tellers or psychics. No, prophets of God were not foretellers as much as they were forth-tellers. That is, God used his prophets to speak forth the things that God wanted his people to hear and know and obey. Prophets spoke for God to God's people. And so what does the very beginning of this book say about Jesus, as our sister Lisa read? Look with me at Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. 
in these last days, which the Bible tells us we're living in. The last days that we've been living in since Christ's first advent. In these last days, God has spoken fully and finally by his Son, whose words and whose teaching are recorded for us in the Scriptures. The Lord Jesus Christ is the final prophet from God, the greatest prophet from God, the one to whom all the other prophets were looking forward to. In chapter 2 of Hebrews, the writer puts on the lips of Jesus, Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two: I will tell of your name to my brothers. That's prophetic function. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And so what's the right response to God speaking to his people through a prophet, especially the last prophet, the capital P, prophet? We're to listen to him. As we said back in the last warning passage, chapter 12, verses 25 through 29, we're to pay much closer attention to what we've heard from this son. We're not to refuse to listen to this son who is warning us from heaven that if we fall away from faith in him, there is nowhere else to turn to salvation and we'll be forbidden forbidden from turning back. He's the final prophet. In these last days, God has spoken to us By the Son. Not only, though, is he the final prophet, but notice from chapter 1 and verse 3, and indeed the largest portion of this book, he's the final priest, the true priest, the greatest priest to whom all the other priests were pointing. Look at verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After making purification for sins. That's priestly language. Because who is it who offers the sacrifice that bring purification? Ceremonial, skin-deep purification under the old covenant, but entire eternal purification from sin in the new. Who does that? It's the priest. But unlike the old covenant priests, the new covenant's high priest's sacrifice actually takes away sins. It actually perfects for all time those who are being sanctified. And the old covenant priests offered sacrifices of grain or animals, but not the new covenant high priest. The priest who's not in Aaron's order, whose whose service ends at death. This priest is priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this priest doesn't offer grain or goats. He offers a lamb. Indeed, He offers the lamb, the true Passover lamb. He offers as the only effectual sin-atoning sacrifice the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He offers as full and final payment for all the sins 
for all of his people, the lamb whose blood ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And this priest is that lamb. He offers himself. This priest is the wrath-propitiating sacrifice that he offers. And this final priest, who, like the final prophet, is the Son of God, this final priest doesn't make the offering of himself in an earthly tent like the old covenant priests did. And he doesn't have to first make an offering to purify himself as the old covenant priests did. No, this sacrifice is sinless and stainless. And he offers his blood, the blood that inaugurates this new covenant with all of its eternal blessings and promises in the true holy of holies and the tent in heaven, the tent not made with hands where God dwells. And so now... Brothers and sisters, what are we to do in response to his priestly ministry? By faith, we're to draw near to God through the Son who is the priest. Old covenant priests went to God on behalf of the people, but they couldn't bring the people with them to God. That's why the high priest wore 12 stones on his ephod representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Because when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he was symbolically bringing Israel with him to God. Not so with this priest. He doesn't symbolically bring his people to God. He really and truly brings us to God. With his death, he's opened for us the curtain to the Holy of Holies. And in him, we come to the Father. Do you hear that? We come to the Father. And we're welcomed. We need not fear reprisal or rejection. As we're going to hear beginning next week from the book of Esther, the scepter is extended to us. Because we're in the Father's Son, his beloved Son with whom he's well pleased, we're received. Think of it, brothers and sisters. And the face on the throne in heaven wears a smile toward his people. Because we've come to him by the faith he's given us in his son. And so we're given this magnificent command. This marvelous command in view of this one who is our great high priest. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may, refine, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And how is it that this priest accomplished bringing sinners into God's presence? The very people who had been exiled from God's presence in Adam How did this priest accomplish getting us to God? Wasn't it by being forsaken by God? By being exiled from God's presence on the cross in our place? Christian, be clear. We deserve to find heavenly warriors with flaming swords forbidding us entrance to God because of our sin, but because the new covenant high priest died in our place, 
offering the only sacrifice that takes away sin, offering himself, we are now not exiled from God's presence as he was on the cross. We're brought in. We're accepted. We're received without hesitation because we've come to the Father in and through the Son. This priest, the Son priest, the great high priest of the new covenant, this priest whose sin atoning sacrifice is himself, this priest's offering purifies us from within, from all of our sin, and cleanses our consciences. And this priest brings us with him to God's throne, into God's presence. There's nothing you have going on. No trial. No sorrow. That isn't lifted by considering that the Lord Jesus Christ has caused you to come to God. What happened after Adam and Eve sent in the garden? They were sent out. They were exiled and forbidden from coming back in. And that's what your sins deserve. And if you never come to Christ, you who are outside of Christ, that's exactly what you'll have. For all eternity, exiled from God's presence in the lake of fire. May God give us grace to, to marvel, to marvel and to, to, be, to be indescribably grateful that we've come into God's presence by his son. Well, the son's not only the final prophet and the final priest, he's the final king of God's people. After his death and resurrection, Jesus ascended to his father, at which time there was a, a heavenly coronation. Now, of course, there's a sense in which the Lord Jesus, as the, the second person of the triune God, has ruled as all sovereign over the universe from its creation. But there's nevertheless an enthronement as God's son king that the Lord Jesus had not participated in until he had accomplished the work that the Father had meant for him to do from eternity past. You see that again here in chapter 1. Look with me again at verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, that is, after offering himself on the cross, what happened? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, enthroned, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Skip down to verse 8. But of the Son, he, that is God, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Skip down to verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, this is the Father speaking to the Son, sit at my right hand, enthronement language, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Seated in the place of preeminence at the Father's right hand, seated on the throne that the Lord promised to David in 2 Samuel 7 would be eternally occupied by David's greater son, the all-sovereign, whose enemies will all, everyone, verse 13 says, 
be under his feet in total defeat and total submission. The Lord Jesus Christ, by virtue both of the offering he made as great high priest, by virtue of his marvelous resurrection, has been crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. And so crown him, church. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Awake, you souls, and sing of him who died for you and hail him as your matchless king through all eternity. What's the only proper response to this one who is king of all creation? Fear, worship, adoration, awe, love, reverence. Fear because he's the all-sovereign king, the all-powerful king who will be the judge at the last day. Worship and admiration and love and reverence because that befits the only king who died to make his enemies his beloved subjects. Who dies to make those who would kill him rather now have a seat at his banqueting table. The only proper response to this king is the acceptable worship that we saw from Pastor Eric's text last week. Humble, genuine love for the brethren that evidences genuine love for the Lord of those brethren. And so because the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son, who is the prophet, priest, and king, hold fast to him. It will be of no good to you eternally, professing brother and sister, to have started with Jesus, even if you started with apparent great zeal and fervor, It will be of no eternal good to you if you start with Jesus and then fall away before the end. In fact, if there are degrees of punishment in eternity for those who die without faith in Christ, it may be that those who begin with the Lord Jesus and then turn away from him receive the stricter penalty for having beheld the glory of the Lord and then decided that's not enough for me. And so hold fast to this all-surpassing Son. That's the message of Hebrews. Don't turn from the gospel to the left or to the right. Hold fast to him all the way to the end. And if you're his, you will. God will cause you to. Even so, his keeping you is going to often feel like you're striving to hold on to him. It's going to feel like you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling, even as you know it's God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. But let's put some meat on these bones, huh? Let's get specific. How is it that we hold fast to the all-surpassing sun so that we don't fall away? Don't be satisfied with mere sentimentality here. The Bible helps us. How is it that you hold fast to this son? How do you live a life of looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith? Well, of course, you know that if you want to look at someone, you have to know where he can be found. And Jesus can be found here, and he can be found here. And he's especially present 
when this is being preached in this. This book, Romans 10 calls, the word of Christ. It's in this book and this book alone that we have what the Father has spoken in these last days through his Son, who was the final and greatest prophet of God. When the gospel from this book is preached by men who've been gifted by God the Holy Spirit to teach this book, it's then that Christ is publicly portrayed as crucified, as Paul said to the Galatians. It's then that Christ's sheep hear his voice, as Jesus says to his disciples in John's gospel. Do you want to hear from God? Then get under the scriptures in your home and in the church. You're gazing at Jesus when you take in the Bible. And you're gazing at Jesus when you come to church. I wonder, if you were to apprehend what I'm talking about, whether it would change what you think about Sunday mornings. You ever been driving to church and said, all right, kids, or all right, sweetheart, or all right, self, as I would say, as I'm driving in? We're going to go see and hear Jesus today. That's what's happening here. Until you see him face to face, as you will on the day when he resurrects you, you see him most clearly in his body and the people in whom he dwells by his spirit. So be around his body. Prioritize the gathering of his body. Order your work around this. Order your travel around this. Order your recreation around this. Order your Saturday night plans or your Sunday plans around this. Why? So that you can behold this son. He's found among his people in a much greater way than he's found merely when you're enjoying the lake or the cabin or supposedly worshiping at Mattress Springs Baptist Church or anywhere else you might delude yourself into thinking that you're meeting with Jesus as over against this gathering. He's in the Word, and he's in the body. So be in the Word and with the body, and best, be under the Word with the body. That's how you find yourself, brother and sister, heeding the command to be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of the faith. And that's how you hold fast to this all-surpassing Son. And let me just ask you, while I'm exhorting you to hold fast to this Son, let me just ask you, why wouldn't you want to put yourself where you can be looking to Him? Why wouldn't you want to put yourself where you can fix your eyes on Him? What about the Savior that's being held up in the book of Hebrews isn't enough for you to totally orient your life and have your life's holy obsession be the pursuit of him. Isn't the Christ held forth in this book excellent enough for you? He's superior to the angelic hosts of heaven. He's superior to Moses, to those who were priests of the old covenant. Is he not lovely enough for you? Dear brother and sister, think of him. This one who was made like his brothers, the eternal God, was made like his brothers in every respect that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest.
Is he not magnificent enough for you? This one who willingly took on flesh so that he might sympathize with you in your weakness as your sinless, though thoroughly sympathetic priest. This one who, to take us to God, was God forsaken on the cross. This one who knew that the only wrath-appeasing sacrifice that could save his people was his own lifeblood, and so he offered it willingly on the cross. I'm asking, is he not glorious enough to cause you to turn off the podcasts and the music and the movies and the television shows and the hobbies and whatever else causes you not to be looking to him? And replace those things with things that do move you to look on him in the word and with the body. Is he not marvelous enough? I ask you, what is lacking in the Lord Jesus Christ? What excellence does he lack? What greatness, what loveliness, what majesty, what splendor is lacking in him that does not cause you to say, Oh, what a savior! Oh, Father, I want to hold fast to him. Help me to love him and obey him and worship him and look to be gladdened and satisfied by him. My prayer is that that affection is what results for us as a church from our time in Hebrews. I need it in my soul, brothers and sisters. And sinner... You who are not yet born again, not yet saved, not yet Christian, I'd ask you similar questions. Would you give me just a couple of minutes? What about the Lord Jesus as you've heard him rhapsodized over in this book today? What about him isn't enough for you? You who've yet to repent and believe the gospel. He's marvelous beyond any person's ability to tell. In him is the most profound example of everything that's good and excellent. And he died. This one died to cause sinners like you to become his friends, his sons and daughters by faith. And he says to you through the mouth of this preacher, turn to me and be saved to the ends of the earth. Turn to me and be saved, for I am God and there is no other. Unbeliever, he says to you today, forsake your sin and see this Savior as the all-surpassing treasure that he is. And in your joy, I plead with you, unbeliever, in your joy, forsake everything you're holding on to, your sins and your desires and, yes, even your own life. In your joy, forsake all to have him and find that you've only exchanged garbage for priceless treasure. Come to him. Come to him and be saved. Come to him and have all your sins forgiven. All your sins. The stuff folks know and the stuff you pray no one ever knows. All of it forgiven. Come to him and be given eternal life and Be made right with the God of heaven against whom you've rebelled in your sin. Come to him. I don't care if you're an elementary schooler, a middle schooler, 
a high schooler, a college student, I don't care what age, you're in Adam. So come to him so that you don't eternally suffer in everlasting conscious torment in the lake of fire as the righteous penalty for your sinful rebellion against him. As the Israelites looked up to the bronze serpent on the pole and lived, all of you consider Christ lifted up on the cross, dying to pay the penalty for the sins of people just like you. Look to him and live forever. And don't wait. Come to him by repentance and faith today. As we close the book of Hebrews and prepare to hear the voice of Christ from the book of Esther next week, hear this. This son, this prophet who heralds the new covenant, this priest who mediates the new covenant and sealed it with his blood, this king who reigns as the beneficent ruler of all who participate in the new covenant, this son is worth your holding to all the way to the end. Lest you fail to worship this son, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. <sighs> Father, thank you for your son. How do we even begin to say thank you for your son? except we say thank you for this one who has caused our sins to be forgiven, our consciences to be purified, and has caused us to dwell in your presence. Help us to respond to this son as he's worthy to be responded with love, reverence, worship, and obedience both now and all the way to the end. We thank you for this son. We pray we'd not fall away from him. And we ask it through him. Amen.